Acts 17, 22 through 34. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. We're in the book of Acts. If you're new today, I want you to know that since the beginning of the year, we've been in the book of Acts. It's a powerful, powerful book. Um, it's got so much richness inside there, so much application for us, and speaks so powerfully of who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and who Jesus calls us to. As Jackie just read, um, that opening verse of Acts 17.22 says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens. And I know you're thinking to yourself, Men of Athens, Areopagus, I'm pretty sure last week that we left Saul, as Ellie said in the kid's life story so perfectly, we left Saul, he was Saul, and he just became Paul, and he was on the road to Damascus. And that was just last week. And now, all of a sudden, he's standing in Areopagus. He's standing there, and, and I, how did this all happen between last week and this week? I mean, there seems to be like something happened in between here. We, we just heard that, right, he, last week, Jesus spoke to him in Hebrew. He was on this road to Damascus experiences. He was connected. A guy called Ananias came to him. He laid his hands on him. He called him brother. He embraced him. And Saul became Paul. And he became the follower of Jesus. But today, 
Today, this text, Paul is standing in the middle of Areopagus, that is Mars Hill, and he's addressing the men of Athens. He's at the epicenter, the cradle of civilized debate. This is the birthplace of democracy. Athens, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but it, it had as its kind of icon, its logo, if you like, uh, this beautiful picture of an owl. Uh, and this was on this, uh, the, the coins that they had up here. We'll see it come up on the screen at some point. Uh, I'm imagining it right now. Let's see if we can do that. No, no owl. Oh, the owl is in your imagination as well. Um, so imagine an owl. I'm imagining it too. Uh, it's a beautiful picture. Uh, somehow we lost it, but it was there. <laughs> so um, it had an owl because they believed that they were the center of wisdom. And this is how they actually operated. They were kind of the combination of, of Cambridge University and Oxford University and Harvard and Colorado, so CU as well, all rolled into one. It was this epicenter for them, and that was what Athens was. It was the home of the Epicureans. The Epicureans were the forefathers of evolutionists today. 500 years, 500 BC, they believed that we were created due to atoms coming together. I know some people believe that we only came up with this idea in the 1800s, but actually this is 500 BC. They came across this idea that we were created by just these atoms coming together as a and therefore that's how we were created. Gods, gods exist maybe, who cares? They exist in their own sphere, we exist. This is what the Epicureans believed at the time. And what you should do is you should avoid all pain at all costs and just avoid that as well. It was also the home of the Epicureans, but it was also the home of the Stoics. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God is inside everything, inside the wood, inside the carpet, inside the, the furniture around you. He's inside and moving inside everything. He's the divine spark. You may have ever seen, any of you ever seen the Transformers movies? Mm -hmm. The divine spark, that's where they got it from. Uh, they got it from the Stoics. Uh, the divine super force of the spark, that's where they got it from. They believed that we were all gods. In fact, when we die, our blood entered back into everything, right? And so we just returned back into the old spark inside there. And then it was also the home of the academy. Three things, right? Epicureans, Stoics, and the academy. Now, when you understand its birth, the academy, you're probably... If you understand how significant the academy was, you'll understand how important it was for this particular thing. Because today when we think of academy, we just think of, oh, I don't know, high school. We think of, oh, academy, what do we do? We go to academy so that we can get a better job. Maybe go to college, right? That's why we go to academy. We don't understand that academy was far, far greater back then because it was the birthplace of philosophy, of education. It was not just a K-12 discussion of education. It was not just about hoops where people just jump through. When I was a student at Newbold College uh, in England, which is a very small uh, private school by the Seventh-day Adventist Church in England, uh, we had professors with terminal degrees from lots of different universities. Some had theirs from King's College in London, some had it from Oxford University, some from Cambridge, some from Andrews University, lots of different places. I had this one professor, though. Um, he had his academic regalia uh, from Cambridge University. And he would, he would come every single day to college, to Newport College to classes. He would ride his bicycle in his regalia, flailing through as he's coming through Binthill Village. He'd arrive on campus. He'd teach in his regalia every single day. It was embedded into his culture. 
That's where he was in Cambridge. That's where he was at Nimble College as well. He enjoyed it. And I was like, this is beautiful. I mean, it was just like, it just flowed. He went in the cafeteria. It was like he had like some kind of like sword was going to come out. I felt like I should be knighted in his presence. It was very, very important to him. But the academy was very, very important to them as well. And Plato was the father of the academy. Plato was the father of higher education. And Mars Hill, where Paul was standing, was the place, the birthplace of the academy. It was the city council. A little interesting side note here. You'll see, I don't know whether we have this picture as well. Do we have this picture of, we do? Oh, we do, great. Look at these two fellows here. They, apparently you have to have curly hair back then. Um, or maybe that's all they could actually carve out to be able to show the hair. But on the left side here you have Plato and on the right side here you have Socrates. Socrates was the teacher of Plato. And uh, he taught Plato everything and uh, Plato is the one who started the academy. Just as a side note here, Socrates introduced a whole new idea of education and philosophy and he at one point introduced some new gods, some new deities, right? And because he introduced these new deities, they, they flipped out, the Athenians flipped out and said, who are you to introduce these new deities to us Athenians, to the young people? You were messing with the minds of these young people. And so they declared a new law. The king of Akron said, you cannot bring in new gods without the king giving you authority to bring a god in. Henceforth, from this day forward, they said to Socrates and to others as well, if anybody were, was to introduce a god, a deity, the city council in Mars Hill, the wisest people in the entire world at Athens would have to decide together, should this god be allowed to join the other gods? Do you understand? And if they disagreed about this, they could kill you, condemn you, or they could let you live. And this is very important because I want you to understand that when Paul is standing on Mars Hill before the city council, some have tried to argue that it was not a trial. Oh, Paul was just having a chat. He was talking to philosophers. Hey, what do you think about the unknown God? I don't know, mate. What do you think about it? That's what they were discussing, right? No, no, no. I believe that Paul was standing there on trial. In fact, the text says this. May we know, this is what it says in Acts 17, 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. And he right when he translates this in his own version of the New Testament that he does, he actually argues a little bit stronger inside there. He says, how are we supposed to know? I mean, how are we? Are you, are you really going to tell us? He kind of inserts the, the kind of sim simple sarcasm inside there. You simpleton, Paul. You, you pleb, you Paul. I mean, who are you, Paul, to tell us? Can you tell us we simpletons, we Athenian simpletons, we great minds? Could you, Jewish boy, tell us about this God? Could we ever understand who this God is? That's what they were saying inside here. Because he was presenting this God, and the God that he was presenting was Jesus and Anastasius. That's what he was presenting. This is Jesus and Anastasius. Anastasius actually basically means resurrection. And here was the confusion. Paul was walking in the synagogue, talking there, and he's discussing, and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus and the resurrection. He's using the word anastasis, which means resurrection. They knew that Jesus had died. 
And so when they understood that Jesus had died, they believed that Anastasis' resurrection was a reference to the spirit. So they thought that Paul was referring to, typical, which is what they believed always, to two gods, that he was presenting to them two gods, the male god and the female god, the female god called resurrection. That's what they thought, that he was bringing two gods to them. So they were like, two for one, that's what the deal was. And that's what they understood. Resurrection equals anastasis. So they believed that he was presenting two gods inside this. I know we're delving into some really deep stuff inside here, and you're thinking, where is he going with this? Well, I wanted to delve into this because there's a question underneath all of this that I think needs to be answered before we unpack what Paul said. Where did Paul get to this point? How did Paul get to this point? where Paul suddenly felt that he could stand in Mars Hill, in the epicenter of the culture, the elite of the Athens, of the community of the world, and say, this Jesus is risen, and I want to tell you about him, because you need him in your life. Question number one in your worship guide says this. How did Paul end up in Mars Hill? Good question? I think it's a good question. I'm glad I wrote it. I'm proposing that we should answer that question as well. It's good because that's where I'm going next, just in case you were confused where he was going to go next. Some people sometimes say to me, where is the thread in the sermon? I'm letting you know where it is. It's following the question. Right, how did he end up in Mars Hill? Well, so much has happened since Damascus, right? And, I, and I'm going to explain this a little bit next week because next week we're going to explore how Paul shapes the common culture, the entire Corinth area here, right? And then in two weeks' time when we come together for Easter, we're going to go back into Acts chapter 12, a little bit back into Acts chapter 12, and we're going to explore a little bit inside there. And that's going to be pretty fantastic. So I encourage you to join us for Easter, Friday night, and for Sabbath morning as well. But for today... We're going to look at how Paul shapes the elite culture in Athens. Now, Luke only records two minutes of this conversation. If you read this entire passage, it's a very short sermon. But in fact, Paul probably spoke for at least two, three hours in dialogue uh, inside this particular council. Here, There was no way that he stood up there in front of the entire council when they pulled him in and brought him forward for just a two-minute conversation and said, be gone and we're done with you. It was a, an interrogation. It was a discussion. It was a deep conversation inside there. But to get there from the road to Damascus, so much has happened. 18 years has gone by. He spent three of those years in Arabia. He actually had a conversation, another vision with Jesus Christ where he said, this is where I received the gospel. He went to Jerusalem and he connected with Peter and with James, Jesus' brother. And he had a discussion with them and Barnabas said, look, I trust this guy Saul who's now Paul. Understand that he's sincere. But then he got hunted down by people and his life was threatened many times. He went there and he escaped back more than once. But now he's on a mission to Europe. And this journey, as he's on to Europe, is where we find him in chapter 16, just the chapter before. He's there, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, all connected together. And Luke records three stories of people who are 
coming together, discovering Jesus. And I think these stories are really powerful because these stories actually kind of let you know why Paul feels at this point, 18 years down the journey, that he can stand in Mars Hill before them and speak of this Jesus and the resurrection before the Athenians. Lydia, the woman, this is the first story. She rules uh, and runs a high-end fashion boutique selling purple linen. Now, I, I'm just, I'm just going to lay this as a little plant, a little seed in your mind, all right? Purple linen. This is a, a technic moment for you. I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to plant the seed so you can go work this out. Purple linen. A woman's going to come to Jesus. Jesus was crucified on the cross with purple cloth. Hmm. You work that one out. All right. Here is the thing, though. This woman, Lydia, she discovers about Jesus. She actually hears through Paul this amazing thing, another sermon. She's inspired about this, and she says, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And she says, let me open my home. And she says, my home now belongs to the gospel to be proclaimed. And this is fantastic. And Paul is very excited about this. And so the first story you hear suddenly that Paul is like, he's preaching the gospel. He preaches Jesus and resurrection. This woman, Lydia, who sells his fine stuff, says, I have turned everything over. I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. And as this happened, Paul is thankful to be in line with the mission of Jesus. This is a very important sentence. Paul is thankful to be in line with the mission of Jesus. Next story that pops up is a slave girl. She's possessed by Satan. Now, this is not mental health issues. This is not chemical imbalance. This is not a personality quirk. She's possessed by Satan. I know some people are like, well, Satan doesn't really exist. Ah, yeah. There's not really a bad thing out there. It's just God. Satan exists. Evil exists. This is the type of evil I'm talking about where floating bodies happen. The horror that takes place, this is the kind of Satan that I'm talking about here. This is the imaginary stuff. This is not this kind of stuff where people say, really, Pastor, are you like, are you like some kind of like primitive three-year-old that you believe in Satan? No, this girl was possessed by Satan. And she is ranting about Paul, just following all over. Now, watch this. This is fantastic. Luke records this story, and here's the reason why I believe the Bible is inspired. Because if you were going to tell a story about the Bible, right, if you are going to tell a story about the gospel, if you were going to recount the story of the gospel, surely you would clean up all your characters, right? You would like try to paint them in the perfect picture and make sure that every character looks so fantastic. No, no, no. Luke just says this. He says in Acts chapter 16, verse 18, as he's describing this, he says this, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out the very hour. I mean, it's not really nice, right? It's like kind of Paul's ticked off, and so he commands the Spirit to come out of it, instead of like rather, and Paul had great compassion, looking upon this poor slave girl, and then said, oh, come out of her, right? No, he's like, oh my goodness, you're driving me insane. Get out of her, right? I mean, that's not really a very gospel-esque kind of picture, really, but it's because Luke is just recording reality. Well... Maybe there's a little bit more inside there, and I'm kidding a little bit. I am kidding a little bit inside there. He does get ticked off with that evil spirit, and he does do this. But Paul is thankful to be in line with the mission of Jesus. Of course, the slave girl was making money for her pimps. 
right? And they're not happy with her no longer working for them. So they arrest Paul and Silas now. They strip them down, then they beat them, and they throw them into prison. The prison guard, on his own initiative, without anybody asking him, just decides to throw Paul into prison in the center cell. That means he has no window, right? Because he's in the center cell. No window, no toilet, no care, no ointments, no bandages, just throws him right there and puts him into stocks. This is not stocks like in Disneyland where you, you know, you're like you're sitting down there and Pirates of the Caribbean is kind of friendly. No, no, these are stocks where they spread your legs kind of parted and you're in pain for the entire time and you're there with your bathroom in the same position. It's a painful situation for you. This is where they're stuck inside there. While they're in that situation, Paul and Silas start to sing praise songs to Jesus, right? They lift their voice to Jesus. And, and I mean, it's just this incredible moment where they're like lifting their voice to Jesus. And he's just like, it was worth freeing that girl from the clutches of Satan that we were beaten up and we're here right now. Despite all this, Paul is thankful to be in line with the mission of Jesus. Now, the prison guard, he's ex-military. That's the only way he became a prison guard. He's probably just past retirement. Um, he did not care for Paul and Silas. He did not care for his bandages. He didn't provide any food or water. He put him in the stocks. Then suddenly there's this earthquake in this story, right? And every prisoner is able to be freed. And you know, the rule was that if you, as the prison guard, allowed the prisoners to get away, you had to give your own life. And the prison guard knows this because he's probably an Epicurean. He's probably a Stoic. And if he's a Stoic, then he knows that the philosophy of life is that if you believe that life actually comes to you and you have no God and there is no other way, then you must return. So he takes a sword to kill himself. And as he's about to take his own life, he, heard, he hears the voice shouting from there, says, hold on, man, hold on. And he hears Paul shouting, saying to him, everyone's here. We haven't run away. Every prisoner who could have run away hasn't run away. The guard, the Bible says, the guard lights his fire, walks in back into the prison, sees that every prisoner is inside there, and he falls at the feet of Paul. And the text says that his words are, what must I do to be saved? To which Paul says, we will start a 20-week Bible study series. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. I got that wrong, no. We're going to send you a 20-week Bible. No, no. No, he says this. <laughs> All right, I'm reading it now. He says this. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Hmm, that was wrong. You and your household? Yeah. You and your household. Did you hear that? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, prison guard, and you and your entire household will be saved. Huh? It's kind of an inclusive gospel. Huh? Jesus is like saying, I want to kind of pull your whole family into this. 
The God then washes Paul and Silas. He then bandages them up. He then gives them food. He then gets baptized. He doesn't wait 400 years. He gets baptized straight away. Paul is thankful to be in line with the mission of Jesus. And the next morning, the next morning, and this is kind of magical, the next morning, um, he gets up and the magistrates find out that Paul is a Roman citizen. And they flip out. They're like, we, we beat up a Roman citizen without a trial. Uh, we, we put him in prison without a trial. And they are panicking now. And they're, they're just like, they come and they have to apologize in person to Paul. Because this is a huge mistake. It's like Paul had his, Paul had his English passport in his pocket. And he pulled it out and showed the queen's face. It was fantastic. He said, on behalf of her, <laughs> step aside. It actually does have power like that. I know, you're kind of amazed. It does. And, and, and they're like, oh my goodness, and they step aside. Now the question is, why did Paul not tell them before? I mean, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have just like, when they're about to bring you and strip you down, wouldn't you say, uh, English passport, step aside. I'm a Roman citizen. Why did Paul not stop them from beating them up? Could it be? Could it be that Paul became the prisoner to set the prisoner free? Hmm? Could it be that Paul was following the footsteps of his Messiah who became the sinner to set us free? Who took on all of sin, what Corinthians talks about. Not that Jesus sinned, but he took it all on him so that we may be set free. Hmm? Could it be that the Paul just said, let me just place myself inside there. Could it be, and here's this other crazy idea, that one of the most famous prayers that they used to pray in those days was, men used to pray this all the time, dear God, I thank you, God, that I am not a woman, that I am not a slave, that I am not a Gentile. I thank you, God, that I am not Lydia, that I am not a servant girl, that I am not a Roman God. Hmm? Could it be that the gospel turns everything upside down? Hmm? I mean, it's pretty darn amazing, don't you think? <laughs> that Paul's like, well, you know, maybe I should be in line with the mission of Jesus. Maybe that's what I was called to do. Maybe Paul is thankful to be in line with the mission of Jesus because he's hearing the voice of the Spirit who is advancing the kingdom against all odds. Last Sabbath after worship, the Open Word Connect group that meets up here, uh, meets in the sanctuary up here, uh, they had a great question. Jeremy had this great question. He, uh, he asked this, and we, this is the way we begin. We always ask you to, to say your name, um, and, then to, and then Jeremy will think of a question, and I think Tom's teaching today, and, and so I'm looking forward to your question, Tom. Right, good. Uh, and so it was a great question last week, and, and Jeremy's question last week was, what brought you to Colorado? So everybody was sharing their name or what brought them to Colorado. I wanna tweak that question just a little bit today, based on the passage. How did we end up in Boulder Church? Hmm? I know you're like, well, I follow the GPS, no, seriously, question number two, how do we end up in Boulder Church? I mean, were you just simply born in the area and you ended up in this kind of church here? Is it that you chose this church? 
Did you drive past 10 or 20 different churches to come here? Are you joining us online for some particular reason that you chose this particular church and this particular time to join us? Are you in line with the mission that Jesus has called you to? I have several requests right now from pastors around the world who, who said, you know, they would like to come and spend a week or maybe three weeks with me and just kind of like shadow or spend some time and just kind of like learn how to do pastoral work. And these are great pastors. These are great pastors who are visionaries in their own right and domain and they've got creative ministries and innovative stuff and I, and I love them as well. And I, and I think that what they're doing and what they're asking for is, is, is good and I would do the same as well. But here's the truth. I set um, impossible expectations, I really do, for the church and for myself all the time. I believe it's what Jesus calls us to. Um, it's, we're here, and if I were to draw this in a graph, we're here, and if I had a, a board, a school board, I would draw a graph and I would take a crayon and I would continue this line, and it would continue past this board and it would end up somewhere close to Jupiter. All right, that's where it would end, and then I would find some kind of mechanism to continue on. All right? And there, wherever that mechanism takes us, that's where the end of the target is for what we're going to do at Boulder Church. All right? It's a little bit far. Um, can we reach it? No, we, we can't ourselves. But with the Spirit of God, we can do amazing things. All right? But on our own power, in our own might, we can't do these things. So the bar is set high. So I told these pastors, I said to them, look, by normal human metrics, there's no way about this. I mean, it's just, it's just impossible by this. And in fact, on our own power, it's impossible. And I fail every single day. Just and I were talking about this this week. I just said to, look, I look at my day and I can tell you a whole long list of all the things that I fail at every single day. All the things that I know that I have not been able to do without a doubt. And I'm like, well, eh, eh, that's sometime, maybe before Jesus comes. Maybe after he returns. <laughs> because there's just never going to be enough time to do everything that God has called us to. But the bar is still set inside there. However, to be in line with the mission that Jesus has called us to, at times, means that we will be locked up in stocks. Means that we will be stripped and beaten up. And we will get irritated with Satan who attacks the people we love and the people we know. And we will see the people around us and their lives transformed as well. And they will give their lives to Jesus and we will see that joy. So, how did Paul end up there? How do we end up in Boulder? I think we ended up here because Jesus talked to us. The Spirit talked to us and he's called us to be here. And he's moved all these pieces in our life to actually be here for a particular reason, which which means that we actually have to respond to this. So about a week ago, uh, just over a week ago, I sent a text message out, an email first of all, to about 170 guys. And, uh, and I said to them, hey, we need some help with lights and screens and service deacons and a whole bunch of stuff, right? Then, uh, then after that, I realized that, you know, because one person responded, um, I probably should find a different method. I felt like, you know, Jesus had healed uh, 11 lepers and only one returned, but in this case, nobody returned. And, and so then I thought, I, I should try a different method. So I, I texted everybody in groups. And, and then several men responded and said, yes, I could help out. 
Uh, and then I realized some of the men, and so, several of these men already were doing a lot in the church. Uh, and some of them, you know, new fathers and all this kind of stuff, and they've got a lot of responsibilities, and so I understood they've got other pressures. Then some of the guys actually responded, and they said, hey, you know what, I, I actually, I, I cannot take on anything. And what was interesting is that I know some of these guys actually uh, could take on something, right? But they choose not to take on anything. Now, some of them are like, this is getting uncomfortable. Is he talking about me? No, I'm not talking about you. Oh, maybe I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jedi mind trick, I know. I don't believe in Jedis. I have to say everything and put a clause beside it. But here's the thing. Am I talking about you? I don't know. You have to work that out with God, right? But you have to be honest with God about it. You have to be honest with God about what you belong to and what you actually are part of when you come to this church. Because I was surprised how many men stepped up, men who are really, really busy with a whole bunch of other stuff and said, sure. One of the guys wrote back and said, listen, in my work that I do in the medical field, they they schedule everything out three months in advance. If you can schedule me out three months, man, I can schedule out until Jupiter moves back. Uh, We can do this. Uh, We can work this out. We'll be fine. Uh, We'll find a slot for you. It'll be fine. And so it's okay. We'll find a spot for you. And then I got other guys who drive. How far away do you drive, Steve? Yeah, and how many hours did it take you to get to church? An hour and a half to get to church. I said, no problem, Steve. Uh, we, will, we will work it out so that you can, in an hour and a half, you try to get to church. By the way, an hour and a half is not that far. Some people are like, how far do you have to drive? It's not that far, hour and a half. You get to listen to, you know, 16 sermons in an hour and a half. It's fine. <laughs> be great. Be pumped up. Listen to some music. Elijah has a new one. You know, it just be great. So... Uh, But there's so much potential if we all together just talk to God about what God has wired us to do and why we belong to this community and what we're supposed to do and what our responsibilities are inside here. Which brings us to the final question that I have this morning, which circles us back all the way back to Acts chapter 17. Question number three. This is a hard question. How do we share the Jesus we know and love with the elite culture makers today? How do we share the Jesus we know and love with the lead culture makers? It's not, and this is going to be difficult, it's not good enough to simply know the data. I know there's some people like, you know what, you just need to know more, learn more, study more, know all the facts, and you'll be fine. You do understand, right, that Jesus' brother, James, uh, did not get it during Jesus' ministry. He did not get it at the cross, and he didn't get it at the resurrection. But way after that, he, he really unlocked all of this, and then he was thankful to be in line with the mission of Jesus, right? And he wrote this really short letter in the Second Testament, and it's called the Letter of James. It's beautiful. Inside there, he writes this really cryptic and fantastically open sentence. He says this, the devils believe and they tremble. The devils believe and they tremble. The devils are able to read the Bible. They know the data. Satan has the data. But the devils don't love Jesus. Mm -hmm. You have to love Jesus as well. Paul was all about all the data, but he didn't love Jesus. And when you understand that you have to know everything in the Bible and you love Jesus and you put them together, you become somebody entirely different. 
So there are two keys to unlocking what it does to be able to talk to the elite culture today. And it's gonna be very difficult when you hear this. You're not gonna be happy when I say this. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put them on the screen for you. I'm gonna say them to you and uh, you're gonna push back and say, no, it's not that true, but I'm gonna put it to you. I'm gonna just say it out there. And you're like, ah, it can't be true, but this is what it is. Two things, two things, all right? To be able to talk to the elite culture, to the Athenians of today, to the people who are the Achaemenicians, the, the Platons, the, the people who actually understand philosophy and all this kind of stuff. Ready? They have to love Jesus and you have to love people. I know you're gonna be horrified with that, but you do. You actually have to love Jesus and you have to love people. And it's very, very hard to love Jesus and to love people. Because you see, to love Jesus, you can't share who you don't know. <laughs> uh, when they talked to Paul and they called him a babbler in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, the Greek word is really great. It's a spermologos, which basically means like a bird who, who picks up some seed and he just drops it all over the way. They were mocking him and saying, you pick up these ideas and you just drop it all over the place. You have nothing really of value to us. It's because he was saying to them, I speak of this Jesus. And he is alive. And I speak of this resurrection. And this resurrection is real because I have seen him. He stopped me on the road of Damascus. He gave me another vision. He held me. He called me brother through Ananias. And I belong to him. And I will do anything for him. And I will take stripes for him. And I will die for him because he saved me. This Jesus is real. And I love him. And I know him. And he knows me. That transformed his life. When he speaks the resurrection, it's not a mystery to him. It was a physical truth. He said, I saw this man and there is no other thing that could change him. For him, it was Jesus. Full stop, all full stop. So you need to put aside all your excuses. You have made them every single day. You need to actually start to make time to discover Jesus. I know you binge on Netflix. All right? If you can binge on Netflix, you can read your Bible. If you binge on your shows, you can find time to be able to find Jesus. If you can go to see a movie, you can find 10 minutes to read about Jesus. If you don't know how to pray, we can help you to be able to speak to the Word of God, through the Word of God, to God. If you don't know how to actually open your heart, and all you do is open your mind only, your brain only, then let's talk about this. You need to confess your sins When's the last time you actually got on your knees and you said, God, I'm serious. I actually confess things that I've done wrong and I repent of my ways. You need to confess your sins and repent because forgiveness is there. God's already, he's given it out to you. And if you've not done that, then take one of those connect cards today and fill them in and say, God, I need some help with this. Place them inside one of the altars and we will connect with you. Number two, you need to love people. You can't share Jesus unless you see people like Jesus sees them. And this is very, very hard. Paul saw the emptiness of Buddhism. And it is empty, my friends. I know some of you love Buddhism. There is great ideas inside Buddhism. Hear me out. There are great ideas inside Buddhism because they say some good things inside there. But there's great ideas inside my car manual too. All right? There are great ideas inside lots of interesting books. But they're not the solution. They're just ideas because one guy wrote them and he put them down on a pen and he himself said, I'm dead, I never made it, 
I don't have life over death. I have no way forward from this. You need to be able to say that there is a craving inside you. And Paul read this in Acts chapter 70. I mean, he said, look, look at you people. What do you do as Stoics and Epicureans? When you don't have anything, you take your own life. When you're depressed, you have no way. This was their common practice. In order to deal with life, they would kill themselves. This is what they did. They didn't know how to deal with the old and the care for them. They said, we escape with everything. It's a cold, impersonal world. A 73,000 gods all around you. I'm going to tell you about the one unknown God called Jesus Christ who is alive and he knows you personally. And when Paul saw himself, he saw that Jesus was the one who was smart and capable and pulled him through. So he ends with this really powerful verse, and I want you to read this yourself in Acts chapter 17. So page 1026 in your Bible. Acts chapter 17, page 1026, if you turn your Bibles to that. It's a great verse there. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. After he's described to them, using their own poetry, using all of their references of their philosophies that they believe, he says, you've created all these gods because you constantly try to make God into what you want to be able to control. He says this, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Some Bibles say God has winked at you in the past. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Come home. Come home to God. Put aside yourself and come home to God. My friends, we do this with our children because we love them. We teach our children and we correct them because we love them. We do this with people that we love because we care for them. And God is doing this all the time with us. And for some reason, I don't know why, we're scared to do this with other people. But we have to get to the point where we can say, I am nothing, but I'm everything with Jesus.